Well, Merry Christmas. We said before, this is the last um, Sunday before Christmas. We have in, in midweek. And we might like to think that means we get a rather warm and fuzzy story to we can learn about together. And if you're thinking that, then you would be wrong, unfortunately. Um, we get this rather bleak story that comes in order from Matthew chapter 2. And it's not one that we necessarily like to pretend like it's not there. It's just that we don't dwell there. We say, that's kind of messed up, and then we move on and go on to talk about other things. But we're going to talk about it this morning because this is a real part of the story. Um, And it is also an essential part of the story, as I hope will be made clear. So what I'd like to do is just go straight there um, and read the text, and then I'll pray for us, and then we will see what this means for us. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Now when they, being the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled with the prophet what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead." And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Dear Father, we ask for your mercy and your presence this morning, that you would teach us from your word, that you would open up our minds and our hearts to what you have to say here, and that you would encourage us and build us up in Jesus, that we would look to you anew in faith and in hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we said, these stories that we've been through so far, it's been fun to um, go through a gospel account of Jesus' birth chronologically, um, which we have not done that yet in the three season, three years that I've been here at Red Mountain, so it's been fun. Um, but we get here, and this I think is a really interesting story, not in as much what happens, but particularly in the effect that Jesus has on the world when he comes into, uh, comes into the world. And that is we get to see something unique and that we learn something about Jesus' his identity and his purpose, not in just what is said about him, but in the effect 
um, that he has on the world around him. The, the ripples, as it were, that, that go out from him once he comes on the scene. And that the effects that, per- that, effects that a person has on the world tend to clarify who they are and what they are about. Um, I was watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer recently. I'm really glad you laughed, lest you thought that's something I did all the time, and that would be perfectly normal. Um, never mind that, I'm not recommending it. Uh, it was just a rite of passage for me that the thing I was too afraid to watch when I was a kid, um, I was able to conquer and go back to and watch it. Anyways, you'll get the illustration that, you'll get the illustration anyways. Um, there was a new teacher that came to town who was very attractive who was actually a praying mantis in a woman's body. Um, And they were trying to figure out who the villain was in this episode because she was disguised. And the way they ended up figuring it out was there was just a regular old vampire on the scene they were chasing and found out that this vampire was terrified of this new teacher uh, that came to school. And they said, oh, that's interesting. Like, why did this new teacher have this kind of effect um, on this vampire, um, and it made them pay closer and closer attention. And that's just illustrating uh, what's going on here, and that we know this, that people are not just people, um, but we actually have an effect on the world around us. And this is an especially, um, this story especially showcases this fact of this Jesus who claims to be the king Um, who has already been labeled king of the Jews, comes on the scene and things start to happen. And we get to see who he is. We get a little more clarity about his identity and his purpose. And this is especially important to us because we are saying that the Bible is a true story. We believe that it's a true story. And that means the world of this story is also our world. And so the world, the effect that Jesus had on his world at the time also has an effect on our world. And it's something that we ought to pay uh, attention to as we look at this passage. So I've got three points here, and there are three effects that Christ has on the world that are going to show us something about himself. First is going to be resistance. Second is lament. And then third is going to be hope. So let's start with resistance. And this is the one of these effects that jumps right off the page when we, when we read the story Um, Starting here at the end of verse 13, after Jesus is born, um, this angel comes and has to warn Joseph, saying to take the child and mother and flee down to Egypt, for Herod is about to search for this child and destroy him. Herod was not a good dude. He searched out and murdered many people. Um, It's really bleak to look into um, everything that happened with him. But there's something particular about this kid. And this whole story that's been building through the wise men that really got under Herod's skin. And that it's not that he came into the world as just an ordinary baby, but he automatically was a threat in the fact that he was born, of who he was, of the things that were said about him. And we see this resistance rise up in Herod as a threat to his power uh, that he had to seek out and destroy if he has to um, retain his own power. And this shows us something about who Christ is and what he came to do. Um, That if he had this effect on Herod, if this claim to kingship that he is making had this effect, it lends a great amount of weight 
um, into who he was and what he came to do. It was something serious. Um, It was something that had to be addressed, and it couldn't be swept under the rug. Um, And that's, if I wrote to Derek Zoolander and claimed to be the greatest male model in the world, he would probably not write me back. It would not be a thing. But if Hansel wrote to Derek Zoolander and claimed to be the greatest male model in the world, you know that it's a walk-off, and it has to be that way, that that is a credible challenge uh, that has to be addressed. Uh, That's a Zoolander reference. If you haven't seen it, you can consider yourself not that bad off, if (laughs) that's the case. (laughs) That's that's my last early 2000s reference for the rest of this sermon. (laughs) But this illustrates for us that Jesus caused a, a, a substantive amount of resistance to who he was. And there was a weight to his claims that he was the king, not just a king in a religious sense, not just a king in a way that people would worship him just in a synagogues or in temple, but the king overall. And that his kingship was actually a threat to political powers, to geographical powers, to ethnic powers, all of these things. He is the king overall, And we see this unfold even more when we follow the story on. Uh, and that we see when Jesus uh, begins his ministry, the demons are afraid of him before he ever says anything to them. They know who he is, and he has an effect on them. And we have Paul commenting about the end of, um, even after Jesus was raised, that he was raised far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And that Christ came... To be the king. He came to be the king, not in a compartmentalized sense, but he came to be the king of all things. He has authority over all things. He is in more power than all of the rulers. He is a challenge to their hold on the world. And here we get a unique picture of who this guy is, what the author is building for us, the picture of Jesus' identity of him being the king, because of this bad stuff that happens, and that he causes a great amount of resistance to his kingship right off the bat. Why does this matter to us? I think in one way it matters a lot if you are discontent with the powers that be uh, in the world. Um, These could be political powers. These could be cultural powers. um, These could be social powers. um, It could be anything. I was actually talking to somebody just this week who was surveying um, and been talking to a lot of young people. And the common narrative is that the story of the world is that the powers, those who have power are too strong. They have all the power. Prey upon the powerless. That'll never change. And the only way hope we have is to abandon everything and somehow go off and start anew. But through this, Jesus is actually making a claim that he is the king over not only what is inside, but even what is outside. That he is the true power who has come to challenge every other kind of power. And he wants us to see that. But it also feels it it matters to us in the many, many ways that we ourselves feel daily a resistance to God's rule. That it is not always smooth the things that he asks of us. It is not always smooth, the things that he says. And that we can feel something rise up into us that we don't like that. We don't like the things that always that he says. We don't like having to love 
the unlovable. We don't like having to forgive. Uh, we don't abide, like to abide by biblical ethics, whether they be sexual ethics or financial ethics or whatever, when they're not convenient for us and we feel unfulfilled. We don't like to turn the other cheek and to return love when we are wrong. What we want are resistant free lives for ourselves. We want a sense of harmony between our desires, what we feel inside, and the world around us and the way that things work. We don't want conflict. We need it to be smooth. But what this means for us, if Christ has come to be the king, it means the pathway to that harmony is not by changing or getting rid of the king. It goes the other way around. That he is actually claiming rule over us in every way, over all things. There is nothing that is untouched by his rule. This doesn't mean that resistance is, is just a good sign in and of itself in any way, but it does mean that the presence of resistance to God's rule in our lives doesn't necessarily mean that we are in the right and God is in the wrong. It is something for us to seek him again and reflect who he is and what he is about. So that's the first effect, and that's resistance, that Christ instigates a great amount of resistance to his rule, and this gives weight to his claim to be the king. But that leads us to this second point, and it brings us this question, so what is he about? Like, what is he going to do? Is he able to prevail over the powers that be, or are they going to prevail over him? What's going to happen? And we get an answer that we might not initially expect, and certainly one we don't initially like. And that is one of the effects that Christ brings on the world is that of lament. He does bring hope, and he does bring victory, but it comes in a curious way, and it comes in a way that comes through lament, through waiting on things to be liked, to be right, to be the way that we long for them to be. Lament is the second effect. And we can see this here. If you look at verses 16 through 18 of just this really sad part of the story, that Herod, in his anger, he went around and he, um, he killed the male children in Bethlehem, um, determined by, through the wise men, um, the time that Jesus would have been born. And there was great weeping and there was great mourning among the people of God. And the thing about this is that the little taste of hope of Jesus and the celebration and the manger and all the singing kind of makes this feel worse. It was just a little moment of hope followed by a great moment of lament. And I couldn't help but think um, of this as an illustration. Some of you know that I lived in Budapest, Hungary, uh, when I was in high school. Uh, if you don't know where that is, if you put a pen right in the middle of Europe, you're probably very close to where it is. But one of their national holidays they celebrate every year on October 23rd of 1956, um, under Soviet rule, they were the first and I think per perhaps the only um, nation to rise up and kick the Soviets out. Like it was a grassroots uprising, they turned over trams, um, and they effectively kicked the Soviets out of Hungary and declared themselves independent for eight days. And then Khrushchev at the time saw it as an opportunity 
and moved in with pretty much everything he had and drove tanks through the city, uh, put a mortar on top of the hill, and it was a very uh, dismal scene after that. It was just a little moment of hope that something good is coming, the powers have been overthrown, only to be met with almost a worse situation afterwards. And you might say, like, but wasn't this situation in Matthew just a one-time event? Like, does that mean that it necessarily brings this kind of lament for all of us? How does that apply to us? I think what it illustrates for us is the fact that Christ's hope has come. It came in the form of the incarnation of the Son of God in this little baby. But the realization of that hope and the actually allowing our heart to take hold of that hope almost hurts worse when the reality is that we have to continue to keep waiting until everything can be made right again. And that there is a lament that comes from our hope, a recognition of who the true king is, where our hope comes from, and at the same time, that things remain not as they should be. And that's hard. I mean, what are we lamenting? We, as we said before, we are, we are lamenting the powers outside of us. It might be a corruption or suppression of the weak in any forms. It could be the webs of relationships that we're in that are broken. It could be the rule of self-interest that we feel like we are stuck in. Uh, maybe especially so as we keep talking about when we are around family at the holidays uh, that we just can't seem to break out of. We feel the creation groaning around us in sickness, suffering, frustration, death, everything. And the hope in Jesus just brings this all into clarity that this is not the way that this is supposed to be. Like we are handed an attitude of lament in many ways. But we're also lamenting again the powers inside of us. It's not just what's outside of us. That now when you become a follower of Jesus, something changes is that you now in many ways want to change, want to follow what he asks of us. But then you, you realize when you start really doing battle with yourself that you can't. That the more you try to control your temper, the more you try to control what you look at. It's like it just happens more and more and more and more. You've tried absolutely everything and it doesn't work. And it's sad. Like, why is this happening to me? This is not the effect that I thought it was going to have when I put my hope in Christ. Maybe it's the joy or hope that we felt in the beginning has become weary just with living. And there's something about the fact that when you become a follower of Christ, you have bought into things like that stuff, experiences, autonomy are not going to satisfy and that the old pursuits are not going to cut it. And yet, many of us, we still live in ways where we are not satisfied and we know it. We know the depression that is inside. We know the anxiety. We have this recognition and this longing for stuff to be right, and yet we have to wait. It's lament. The powers that be feel stronger. Things are not right. We often like to think that this is evidence of his absence. But what God wants us to see here is this kind of lament is actually a part of the story. And it is actually, in a funny way, 
part of what it's going to mean to hope in Christ. And we're going to get to, we're going to spell that out here in a little bit in the second point, uh, which in the third point, which we'll move on to now. And that brings us to the question, if this is so, if these effects that Christ is having on the world being resistance and lament, then what are we actually hoping for? Like, what is the good news? What are we hoping is going to happen as a result of the Savior who is coming to us? I think the answer is this, that Matthew is weaving for us a more full story that goes back a long time further than even the events here. And he's going to do it through um, essentially the Old Testament. And that he's pulling on quotes from different parts through the Old Testament story that he is bringing to our attention, which I'm going to say up front is really confusing. Um, if, you've, if you ever looked in your Bible, maybe you've never done this, but there's a, there are these little um, reference points to the Old Testament when you know a New Testament writer says something like, this has been fulfilled. If you ever go and look those up, sometimes they make a lot of sense. Sometimes they make absolutely no sense at all. Um, and on the surface, every one of these quotations fit in that second category here. Um, when he says, out of Egypt I called my son, he's quoting from, from Hosea chapter 11, which has nothing to do with Jesus at all. This is the prophet Hosea looking back on Israel's history and recounting for them how the Lord led them out of Egypt. And yet, despite that, they continued to pursue idols. And eventually, were their, them as a people were dispersed into exile. And this other quotation about um, the voice heard in Ramah, which comes from the prophet Jeremiah, that this is again is, has nothing to do with what's going on here in Matthew on the surface, that this is, he is recounting um, a moment of when Israel as a nation was carried off into exile. And when metaphorically Rachel, um, who was long dead at that time, as if she was looking at her people and the crumbling, that the people that were supposed to be God's special people were no longer there being carried off in exile. So there's some complication here, but what I want to show us is that there is a subtle and artful and beautiful way that Matthew is trying to expand our view of what Jesus is up to in this story, and it is something that is crucially important. I just want to walk through this um, in hopes that this can be clear and will be helpful. Uh, Verse 15, he says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew is bringing our attention to Egypt, Because Egypt was a really important thing if you were a Jew. And that this was um, the time of the Exodus when God's people were formed to be his covenant people. They were delivered. They had a history of being delivered. um, And they were formed as God's special people uh, that had the identity as that. And they had a purpose of displaying God's name to the nations. And there... Israel is referred to God's son, that they as a people are referred to with that kind of closeness as they were the object of his delight and his purpose. But what the prophets keep drawing attention to is that Israel failed in that purpose. They again and again and again rebelled against God and went after idols. They rejected his love and they went their own way instead. 
until eventually, for their own good and for the good of the world around them so that God's name could be known, they were disciplined through exile. And that this people which failed was dispersed and they were no longer a people. But in all of these contexts of what of these passages that Matthew is citing, they are in the middle of these prophets recounting those things that happened, but giving these hints that there is a future hope. There would be a future kind of exile, of a future kind of exodus from exile that is going to happen. That they don't know exactly what it's going to be yet. But there are promises again and again and again and again that the discipline is not going to be the end of the story. That God is going to act and he is going to make this people again. He is going to lead them into another type of exodus and reform them. So then we get here to Jesus' journey. And what we get are these signals through this language of Israel being God's son, through geography of these places, which as the reader we're supposed to pick up on. And that this expectation, this longing that we have for a people, that something is happening here through this guy, Jesus. He is drawing our attention through these events to this hope that had been a long time coming of a new kind of exodus. In order to understand this, we have to get, in order for something to be fulfilled, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a prediction. That's one way that a prophecy can be fulfilled. There's another, there are all kinds of ways of what that word can mean. Often, it means that the answer to some problem or some hope then has been brought clearly and tangibly here into the present. And so what Matthew is trying to get us to see here, he's picking up on these clues that there's something about this guy um, that prompts us to think about this new exodus again. And that it is tied to this person of Jesus. And this person of Jesus is the hope of the longing that has been the case for this people all along. And he's doing it as this. Jesus is walking through the same road, experiencing the same things that this people had done long ago and didn't get right. But he is doing it again, being the obedient and faithful son in the place of where the old Israel was unable to do it. He is showing us that Jesus is becoming in himself, in the one person, the new Israel, who is this actual son of God, the son of God who became flesh and who was sent, the son of God who experienced the same kind of suffering, the same kind of reality. He experienced his own kind of exile here, his own kind of exodus. That the weeping that was heard from Rachel for her people going into exile, that same kind of hopelessness. It's like this situation is so hopeless that there is nothing that can solve this. It's like Jesus is taking those things on himself. He is living the exact same situation, following the same journey that his people have gone on. He is the new Israel. He is the faithful son of God who has come to live faithfully to the pride of the father and to accomplish what the first Israel could not do. And this is curious because what it means here is that Israel, since Jesus is taking this on himself, 
since he is becoming the new Israel, this is a different kind of salvation in Exodus than if he had just shown up and wiped everything out and said, I'm the king, everything is right now. What he is doing effectively is that he is reversing the story. That now the sufferings that the people of God feel and have experienced apart from Jesus, just on their own, that lead to ruin, are now, through union with Jesus, the sufferings of Jesus that did not lead to ruin, but they led to the glory of the Son in his resurrection and again. It means that this Jesus has actually taken the suffering on himself so that those who are low, who are without power, can be reversed and they can be powerful in him. It means that even our death, the most bleak part of the story, is followed not by a final end, but by resurrection and welcome to the Father as Jesus experienced in his own. Christ doesn't immediately remove, but it's like he reverses the story. He redefines the things that we are going through. That our sufferings would be counted as Christ's sufferings. Our sin would be counted to his death instead of our own death. His resurrection, his union with the Father can be counted to you and me who are rebellious and who are resistant to everything that he has done. Jesus has stepped into our place in history in order to do what you and I could not do and in a way leading us in a new exodus so that we, too, can be welcomed by the Father, can be glorified just like he has honored the Son. This means a couple things for us. It means the waiting continues. It means that the things that we want to be right right now, that we are lamented. Some of them might be he moves in powerful, mysterious ways. They're not always answered in the moment. But what he is giving us is a picture of Jesus and his life so that when we look at ourselves, our discouragements, our failures, our sufferings, that they are no more just on us, but that we, through faith and repentance, are invited to look at us through the lens of Jesus and what he did. Jesus forever redefines our identity and our purpose forevermore. And so what we are invited to do, even in as bleak a story as this as we get in the Christmas season, I really think that this is actually where the money is. Because this is showing us what Christ came to do. And that we are invited to to take stock, to look at our lives openly and fearlessly about what they actually are. To be able to look at what's inside and what is not right. But rather than to sink into despair, to turn to him, that we would, in a way that is new and refreshed, that we might hope again that the glory of the Son has been passed on. He has passed on our journey. He has finished it. And as we are united to him by faith, he will carry you to the same destination as well. Let's pray together that the Lord would give us strength to hope in this. 
Father, thank you for Jesus, the one who has gone before us. Thank you for his courage and perseverance and obedience on our behalf. Have mercy on us where we are in our many places. That you would reach down and that you would give us comfort. You would fix our eyes on you. That we might hope. That we might not sink into despair. But that we might be renewed to continue to walk in love for you. Because of him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.